first time ever. Hear you loud and clearly. Uh, and it was going place. That stuff's great. But the game is not a roguelike. Boomer shooter. <laughs> Bang. Hello, this is John St. John, and you're listening to KWP In The Keep, bringing you all the hits from the finest in the world of gaming and entertainment. Now sit back and relax as the drowned god Cathala lulls your mind with the tastiest talk in town. Welcome to another chapter of In The Keep podcast. I'm your very own prophet of the drowned god, the Motherlode. The Keep is a collective of gaming enthusiasts compelled by the drowned god Cathala to frag and jib one another into oblivion for all eternity. Alright, so if you're hearing this live right now, I uh, hope you're having a great time at the Doom Rave. If you're not hearing this live, uh, if you're hearing it on YouTube or one of the podcast directories. Uh, sorry, you fucking missed it, asshole. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Hopefully, uh, you'll be there next year, though, for this awesome event. Thank you to all the people at Doomray for putting this on. But uh, since I know that we're addressing a bunch of people who have never heard the show before, I'm going to take a moment to introduce it. Uh, welcome to The Keep. Uh, if you heard it in the intro, I'm the Motherload or Ty, whichever you want to call me. It doesn't make a fucking difference at all. And I'm very proud to present to you today our interview with Aubrey Hodges and, you know, we all know Aubrey, he's incredible. He's done so much for not just the doom community, but for FPS games in general, having worked on, you know, quake doom 64 final doom doom two under a pseudonym. And this is just going to be a great celebration of his career. And it's a really beautiful interview. He's so open and honest way more than I would have expected. And also we, uh, we brought on our good pal, and Morpher, who is also a musician, uh, does a lot of stuff for the Quake community and the Doom 64 community, and is just an absolutely brilliant musician in his own right, and his greatest influence is Aubrey, so I'm like, how am I going to pass up a chance to have my friend and his hero, you know, talk to each other? So, I'm going to keep this intro nice and short, because I know you guys just want to get on with it, and like, shut up, dude. So, music this week is by none other than Aubrey Hodges himself. I'm going to let it play for a little bit, and as soon as it's over, you will be in the keep with Aubrey and Amorpher. Today on In The Keep, we have Aubrey Hodges. He has had a long career starting at Sierra, and uh, he was eventually scouted by Williams, which eventually became Midway to work on the console ports of Doom and Quake and uh, Robotron and other titles as well. Eventually, he moved on to Electronic Arts, where he worked on many popular franchises, including Madden, and became an audio director. 
He's still producing music to this very day. You can find him on his Bandcamp page where he's releasing uh, new albums. Aubrey, uh, it is fantastic to finally have you on the show, dude. I actually have been trying to do this for a long time. Folks at Doom uh, Rave reached out and said, like, hey, we've got him like right now. I was like, yes, absolutely. I'll do it. I don't know why they needed me to do it, but hey, uh, everyone eventually makes their way to the keep. Hopefully. So what are you up to today is like the first thing that I want to get into. Well, firstly, it's, it's my pleasure to be here and it's always wonderful to talk uh, about the, uh, the games I've been working on and the things that I work on because, you know, I really love games, gaming and doing what I do. It's one of the reasons I've sort of stayed in the game space for so many years. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm a gamer. I can't help it. And, it's an addiction, but I love it. You know, it's one of those happy addictions that I'm happy to have mm-hmm. um, because it's real for me. It's just a real pleasure to play the products after making them. Um, right now, I'm actually trying to wrap up the uh, 20th anniversary edition of Final Doom soundtrack extended edition. Um, and it's coming along well. I was very picky. Uh, I did some early work and I just didn't feel it was up to the quality standard that I wanted for it. Um, and I threw all that shit away because I was like, you know what, this isn't really good enough. It's got to be cool. Um, and I think it was because I didn't, I usually try and come at each of these soundtracks in the same headspace that I was in when I was doing the original work, you know, um, Mm -hmm. I like to make sure that I'm coming at it artistically from the same place. And for me, that's tricky because, um, I'm sort of, I don't know the right word for this. It's, I, I call it like a method composer, right? Sort of like a method actor. I like to really be in the right emotional framework of the material I'm doing. Well, the hard part when you're doing these like really dark ambient things for these serious titles like Doom is that it's a dark place emotionally. And uh, so for me, it was uh, hard to sort of want to go there <laughs> emotionally because I've got so much on my plate. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to have to do it. I'm going to have to delve in and I'm going to have to start thinking in those dark terms and really getting a sense of the kind of dark energy I'm trying to bring to this. Because really what I'm trying to do in a lot of these soundtracks and, and people, some people love it, some people don't. That's maybe a whole different discussion. But I'm trying to bring in the same sort of energy in terms of the player's experience that you get when you have the big amped up kind of soundtrack. It's just a different sort of of emotional drive instead of using just the um, adrenaline alone of a hyper busy soundtrack that's got a big driving kick metal feel to it or whatever, or a really neat bombastic kind of art of noise thing like you might get from Trent Reznor or something. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to play on the nervousness and the energy of fear and, and intensity of the expectation of like what's around the corner. Um, and, and that everything is on the line. And so I'm trying to sort of, and I'm trying to do it a little more diegetically. So rather than having, Oh, this is a soundtrack. This is a soundtrack playing on top of your video game. Have I unimmersed you yet? You know, it's like, no, 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 no. This is coming from the world. Hell is around you. It's invading into our dimension. Um, 
crazy sci-fi beings that are trying to kill you. They're also invading into the dimension. And there you are, your badass self, trying to save everything, save the universe, save the space station, and so on. And so you're pitted against these forces. And I'm trying to make it feel like if you were there, what might that sound like? And so that's a very different thing. It's a, it's a different approach to the, you know, the paste on soundtrack approach, you know? Oh, mm-hmm. let's get, you know, let's get Green Day to do it. Let's throw them, put Green Day songs on, you know, we'll get American Idiot on there. That'll work. Even if it were to work in terms of like having the right energy, it doesn't really work in terms of the connection to the immersion part of the gaming experience. And even if you do things like speed runs or whatever, man, there's still billions of sounds hitting you and all the rest of that. And you're going to hear plenty of frenetic, frenetic energy from that audio speaking. But the soundtrack for me is more of, of a sort of uh, exercise in helping you to feel that emotionally you're there and it's you against everybody. So that's kind of how I approach it. And so doing that is no small thing. So for me, I just, I like it to be right. Um, and I feel like I'm on the track now and things are rolling along real, real smoothly. I'm, I'm hoping to complete in the next, say, three weeks and then get it, get it out there on all the stores immediately. It takes a minute to propagate it all. You know, you, you get it released. You got to get it all approved by Apple and everybody and all the stores. And then it starts rolling out. Um, but, yeah, I'm, I'm excited. That's that's what I'm working on right now. And I'm, I'm, I'm doing a few other little projects, too. We can talk about those in, in a little bit. Oh, yeah, we can get into the whole career, but one thing that you said there, I don't think anyone could ever possibly accuse you of not, you know, going the full Monty with your soundtracks. Like everything that you've done that I'm aware of has been extremely immersive and totally like on the nose as far as what you're setting out to accomplish here. And that's a very different thing than, as you said, you know, we could have just any old, you know, musician or we could just throw some music in there or whatever. But when it really feels like visceral and connected to the world you're in, that's what I think that's the art of making a soundtrack to, you know, not just to a video game, but to any immersive experience, whether that be a film or, uh, I don't know, there's VR porn out there that people can enjoy. I'm sure there's a, a whole musical thing to that too. Probably not as well thought out as this, <laughs> but uh, one of the reasons why I wanted him more for here is because he he like uh, lives by that philosophy, which I assume, Jake, you've never heard until right now out of the horse's mouth. But for some reason, even the music itself is enough to translate that philosophy to people who kind of influ- are, are influenced by your work. Yeah, well, one of the distinctions with ambient music is it's supposed to immerse you. It takes you out of where you currently are and puts mm-hmm. you in a new environment. And it's interesting to hear um, when you talk about, Aubrey, when you go to a different headspace, because that's what puts you into. And uh, with the Doom soundtracks and the Quake 64 soundtracks, it's a darker and in more depressive headspace. And I have felt that musicians who understand dark ambient have some sort of familiarity with depression. And for me, when I start composing this music, I get my head in that headspace, but it kind of lets me understand where my depression is. It puts it in its place. So I have my depression here with the, with my music and it's 
kind of keeps it away from overwhelming me. So it's kind of a, a relief when I compose that music. It's hard to get into that headspace, but once you're making it, once you complete it and you understood what you've made, it's like an expression and you've expressed that depression. So now you can continue on and yeah. work on happier places. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, um, you know, it, it is an emotionally vulnerable thing to do. Um, and I mean, I, I'm, I've been doing this a very long time and I, it would be probably perfectly okay to many people, I suppose, in their opinions anyway, to do music only coming at it um, from intellect or just skill level and expertise. And I could probably still do some pretty cool stuff, but I would know. I, and I really don't want to be, I don't, I really don't want to be that, that sort of an artist. I want to know that I did commit to it and I did deliver something that I was personally connected to. And when you are hearing it, you are hearing some of that darker emotion from me that comes from places of my own fear, anxiety, and, and ability to jump into those dark emotional places. Um, and I think that that's why it resonates with people as opposed to, you know, other work that's out there because, um, there are a lot of people in the industry that just kind of come at it as an intellectual exercise or from sort of a uh, more detached point of view. Mm -hmm. And I can respect skill level and talent. It is what it is, right? Some people are just very skilled and talented, but I think when you, when you go ahead and let yourself be vulnerable emotionally and put it in the work, um, people do connect with it and they may not be able to put it in, you know, explicit terms as to why they're connecting, but that, I think that that really is why they're connecting. And, um, I, I also sort of run scenarios in my head as I'm literally, as I'm working, putting the first basis down of the track, like the first type of weird textural, uh, piece or tonal piece, or even sometimes I'll start with melody lines and things that, that sort of motifs that, that weave in and out of the work. Um, as I'm doing that, I'm thinking, uh, of possible scenarios that you could find yourself in, in that, in that world, you know, what is the guy feeling? I don't care how much of a badass any human being is. There's fear, there's nervousness, there's apprehension in every soldier, every interview I've ever read from soldiers that are like, it's not the absence of fear. It's the, it's the decision to keep moving on past that. You know, they know, they know they could get killed, but that's the job. So they keep going despite the fear. And I think that space Marine, I don't care how bad he, badass he might be, he's going to be thinking in those terms too. And also there's that natural protector instinct that a lot of soldiers have, I think, because it's the strong protecting the weak. And every interview I've seen with really cool men of or women of valor that have been out in these situations and had to do these heroic deeds, you know, they do feel that they're the strong protecting the weak. That's one of the reasons that in some of the pieces I've included little hints and snippets of things that make the, make the world feel vulnerable, like the baby crying thing, right? Mm -hmm. Weaving something in there that I know really hits on a nerve with people, like how much more vulnerable can you get than a baby, you know? So naturally you're going to want to reach out and find that, that problem and then solve it in the world. And so all of these things are designed to sort of connect you with the mission 
which is to save the world, save the people, save the babies, save the, save the inhabitants, whatever you can save with whatever power you've got. I was on a an episode of a, a show called Lore Party where they, uh, for whatever reason, I don't know why they asked me, but they did ask me to come and help them like dissect the lore of Doom, you know, the Doom Marine, Doom Guy, Doom Slayer, whatever they're calling them these days. Sure, right. And they, we, we really got into depth about this because he's, though he is this character who, you know, has no voice until very recently and goes, you know, largely unexplained. Uh, the story of him, as is told in the first person, has been very much like what you just described it, that he, he's not a special operator, which there is a difference between a special operator and, you know, a regular, you know, Marine or soldier, uh, which I can get into as well. But this is just a guy and he's tasked with, you know, saving the world, as you said. And s- there were subtle hints, especially in Doom 2 to his humanity, you know, when he goes back to visit his hometown and, you know, sees like, you know, he is a pet. You, you, you see his neighborhood. And though it's not like the most detailed thing, it's a slight hint at the, you know, the humanity of this character. Um, on what I was talking about with the difference between special operators and with, uh, you know, your typical, like your you know, military police or your infantry guy. Um, the strong protecting the weak thing from, in, in my experience and what I can tell, typically comes from a, a special operator. These are guys who are inserted into an area with a mission to go take care of business. Um, with a, your typical soldier, they, you know, they're more prone to uh, post-traumatic stress because they're not the actor. They are placed in, in an area and asked to guard it, you know, from outside forces. And that I think is the source of fear. Uh, you know, people fear the special operators. They, you fear when you're guarding a base, when is someone going to attack? I don't know what when that is. How is that going to happen? And they're just waiting for it. And right. eventually when it happens, that is the moment where trauma occurs. Right. And so with the Doom Marine, he is a very unique point of view. Because he is, as far as we know, just a regular Joe Schmo enlisted guy who is then tasked with you're the only one left to go save the whole planet. And your music, especially like things like the baby crying, like little subliminal message like that can be so um, powerful and impactful, you know, to tell the story of the character. And, and I think, you know, everything that you've said so far about like, you know, get anyone to do it. You could have a, a super skilled, but you could just take Ingve Malmsteen, right? Like super talented guitar player. Uh, as far as I know, kind of a prick, but I mean, if I ever have him on the show, maybe we'll prove yeah. that wrong. Uh, you have things like that. You have these virtuoso. He's just misunderstood. Just... Well, that's, um, what, that's what I'm kind of getting at is that, uh, I, something you said earlier about, you know, um, the way that people approach art and, you know, like your, your point of view and, and how I want to, make it, you know, not focusing on these things. I even think that, you know, he's also coming from a place of insecurity, probably. I mean, he'll probably never admit to this, but if I ever interview him, I'll definitely ask him the question. Like, okay, but why does he focus so much on technique and all these things? And I think it's because he's got something to prove. He probably, you know, grew up in a, in a in a way that made him feel insecure, and that's why he focused so heavily on, like, developing his musical uh, technical skills. 
and now that's his claim to fame. In the the Legend of King Arthur, Lancelot, right? He doesn't become the greatest knight in the world because he is this uh, technical wizard or anything. He becomes the greatest knight in the world because he is deeply insecure about being ugly. And he just wants to please someone and have a greater purpose in life. So he dedicates his entire teenage, you know, set of years to, I will be Arthur's greatest knight and practices on that. So wherever it comes from, you know, and some people land on either side of the spectrum, I think it's important to note that it comes from somewhere. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because for me, when you're talking about like my approach is um, is so centered around the emotional component of music. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look back through my career, I mean, there are times when I get intricate a little bit musically and or I'll do alternate time signatures or keys or, or, or whatever. Things that make other musicians go, oh, ho, ho, oh, wow, he knows what he's doing or whatever. Fuck mm-hmm. all that. I mean, the, the bottom line is it's emotion. I believe to me sort of, I, I try to approach music primally first as an emotional communication device. I'm not trying to wow you and impress you. You can get that shit all day long. I'm trying to make sure that you can connect with whatever I'm doing. So when I make a melody for, for whatever it is, I try and really sort of hit you across the face with the idea, the emotional idea that I'm trying to communicate with you. Um, because if you don't do that, well, then what the hell are you doing it for? So that people can sit around and be amazed at your virtuosity on things. Oh, look, what a virtuoso. Well, so what? You know, I'd rather listen to somebody play with heart than skill any day. Mm-hmm. And, and if you think about some of the most memorable things you've ever heard in your life, some of the pieces of music that just touch you and blow you away. Look at Pink Floyd, Gilmore, for example. That guy is an amazing player but he's not anywhere near the fastest player. He's not even in the same league as the top thousand fastest players in the world right now. Right. You, you've got people like Petrucci and Malmsteen and all these other people that could smoke the guy in terms of speed, but none of them are hopefully stupid enough or vain enough to think there's some kind of a better player than David Gilmore for Christ's sake. He's yeah. an He's an amazing artist, and when he plays, you are just pulled right the hell into the world he's living in. You are getting exactly the communication he wants you to feel, and he does what he does with skill. And so, see, that's the thing. For me, I try and stay within a certain capability of my own skill levels at the different instruments um, to try and deliver the emotional impact I'm trying to give you. If I can't do it, and you know, I've, I've collaborated with lots of people over the years, um, with Joe Satriani on NASCAR, with Dale Stump on quite a few other titles, and that's when I'll go to a player who I need more than what I can deliver, and I'll go to and get a player who can I can sit with them and show them generally what I want and say, okay, now do your thing, do your virtuoso thing right here because I I can't do that. That's way above my pay grade. So I'm I'm. I try to be humble enough to let other people help me realize my audio uh, goals. Um, And then when I write, though, I really do 
put all that stuff aside and try and come at it more from, um, I'm trying to communicate a certain emotional range with you. I'm trying to make you feel a certain way. And here's my, here's my take on getting you there with me so that we're sharing the same emotional feeling. Um, and it's a different emotion every, every game. Everything has their, their sort of, uh, their sweet spot about what the game is about. Like doom is a very different sweet spot than dragon veil, which is another series. I, I, I did all of the music for and the Dragonville thing is no less than the doom stuff in many ways. It's, it's flawless, I believe for what it is supposed to do, which is make you feel comforted and feel uh, warm and, and relaxed because that's the entire shtick of that game. Um, And so it, for me, it was about helping you to connect with the warmth of home and feeling like this was your little place in this little digital world that was your home and your, your place of safety where you could show off all your neat creativity and your little dragons that you bred and your little park you made. And, and a lot of people, it's interesting, you know, they, they may judge me based on that work in Dragonvale and have no clue that I did doom or, or Madden or all these bombastic sports games or whatever the hell else. Um, But that's, that's why I say I, I have to kind of approach things as, uh, the emotion first, because I really think the way you can deliver on all these interesting styles is to start with the emotion and then work on all the technique and the methodology around that style after. I'll use that as a, as a palette as we go through the, you know, your, your entire career here, but yeah, that you have such a wide palette in terms of, you know, what you've worked on that the emotion behind each different project is entirely different. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, like doom is one thing. And then NASCAR, as you mentioned before, is also a totally different thing, by the way, on NASCAR, have you ever interacted with John St. John? Um, it's possible, but that was quite a long time ago. It's always very weird to, you know, like how, especially these bigger triple a kind of project uh, projects come along. Like, you know, if I said like, "Hey, you worked on Doom sixty four, do you know so and so?" You'd probably be like, "Yeah, I, I've interacted with them at some point," because the studios are kind of smaller and more intimate. But right. with something like that, it's like very big. But one of the big things that I asked uh, John when I had him on the show was like, "I want to hear your your pit crew chief voice." Like, and it was just like, you know, oh, yep, we're coming around the pass. Get on in here and we'll fuel you up right up." Like. <laughs> Typical Southern shit, but he's also yeah. kind of the, the same sort of thing. Like he doesn't even want to see what the character looks like. He just wants to know what, you know, what do you want me to sound like when right. I do that? And right. it's another kind of art form where it's like, okay, uh, what, what's the emotional intent here with voice acting? Yeah. And but, yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, it, it's, it's difficult because when I was at EA, I was a, a studio audio director. So I was dealing mm-hmm. with, many, many, many titles all at once. And then dealing with having to direct the audio uh, and the the voiceover in the booth with Madden, with Michaels, with Collinsworth, with all these guys. Um, So I was just, oh my God, I I don't think I've ever been so busy. That was probably the busiest time in my career where I was just, every day was a long day and dealing with athletes and uh, actors and all of the, and then they would throw, Oh, we want you to do this soundtrack. Uh, you're going to be working with, you know, 
uh, exhibit, or you're going to be working with the executioners, or you're going to be working. Mm. And I'm like, oh shit! Now I've got to, I've got to put that in my schedule. Okay, I got to write some music with these dudes. Who the hell are they? Oh, it's hip hop guys or whatever. It's uh, Lincoln Park or whatever. And so you're, you're just sort of trying to hold on and make sure that what each part of the thing you're doing, like when you're doing it, you're really giving your all to it. And you're making sure it's really sweet. And, um, and once again, it's, it still goes back to the same thing we're talking about, like the emotion first, the energy first, because that's really where people buy into your product. You know, even with Collinsworth and those guys, this is, and of course, when, when you get to that level of announcer, Michaels, Collinsworth, Madden, those guys have been doing it so long, they're almost on autopilot. They can give you such sweet stuff. But so for me, it was almost in, very important to just meet with them as people and yeah. get to know, get to know them a little bit and then get them really relaxed and just being themselves and having fun so that the fun energy the excitement of like live football which these guys love was coming through so one of the things we actually did back then to try and make that happen was we had all these really really cool clips of football stuff through the year where we had taken out the commentary and then we just roll a lot of that stuff as b-roll and, and let them watch it and just commentate on the fly about memories of that and how they felt like that. And then you get really neat, uh, fresh material out of them and get them all jazzed about doing the session where they do have to just sit there and roll off names, you know, Bradford, Bianca Batuca, you know, and they just hit you know, all these names and stuff. And that's not the fun part of the job, but they had to do it. So I would use every trick I could to make sure they were having fun and they were relaxed. And when they did come at the stuff, it had the nice, live excited energy that you want when when you're playing a game like that you know because it really is about the that kind of uh excited energy for the fans that love football yeah they, they live for it you know and they're not stupid people and people in this country are not stupid when they watch football when they watch their sports and their stuff they're into or whatever they know the real thing when they're hearing it and mm -hmm. so you gotta you gotta make sure whatever genre you're dealing with that you're going to give them the real thing. And I think that that's what sets a projects apart that, you know, that don't deliver very well and, and don't do well in the marketplace and projects that do, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, and thankfully I've, I've been very fortunate to work on some things that, that really did deliver and were well received both. Yeah. Um, we've, uh, most of us had an experience when playing games where we hear voice lines and it, sounds like someone in the booth so i think it pays off getting that extra direction where you can get whoever's doing the voice acting whoever's doing the commentary in the right mental state like they're feeling like they're back at the field yeah, and yeah. you can hear it in their voice and sometimes, um and sometimes let me tell you you got to do what you got to do i i had some i won't mention any names because i don't want to embarrass anybody but i i've had actors in the studio who kind of froze up uh, behind the mic. Um, and in one time I even had a, you know, a very big name quarterback get behind the mic and they just couldn't, it, it just sounded so fake and so wooden. I was like, Oh my God, well, you do what you got to do. I literally left the booth, went in there with him beside the thing and just started going crazy and just, Hey, repeat after me, I'm going to do this. I'm going to say blue 42 blue. And then I was just going crazy like a maniac. And it was kind of funny. And then I even did a Grover impression reel from Sesame street. I'm like, this is near and this is far, you know, and I was just anything to get them loosened up so that they could just yell into that mic and feel freedom and realize it was a soundproof booth, man. Nobody's going to hear you. 
Nobody's going to go. This triple a guy was in there and oh boy he he stunk up the room so sometimes you just got to get them past the fear and then and then all of a sudden they start giving you the good stuff and then they get excited because they hear it in their in their ears and the headset they can hear that they just did something that did sound cool yeah and uh yeah so it's sometimes well i tell you what you know you you know you're getting the good stuff when you're drenched when you walk out of the booth and you're just you're soaked you know because you you did what it took and you usually you can barely talk after those sessions but but it's worth it because in the end that energy translates in the game and people pick up on it and you're right nothing is worse than playing a product and having the vo sound like somebody's reading off a script that's terrible yeah when you say that immediately what comes to mind is like the old school pro wrestling games when like you know you can hear jim ross and he's just like if wishes were fishes the world would be an ocean i'm like <laughs> okay, but that's not what Jim Ross sounds like in real life. Let's, <laughs> yeah, and and it's been an interesting evolution. Like you know, this the sound design of games in general. But I mean, you started off with stuff, you know, like uh, like Conquest and uh, Quest for Glory series, yeah. and before you ever got to Doom, and you know, these are like MS DOS style games. Yeah. So what has how's the approach changed? You know, with the format over time for you. Hmm. Yeah, what was it like trying to compose a track back in MS DOS days? So a lot of the young listeners might not understand, but DOS was running basically an operating system via command line. It kind of felt close to programming. Yeah. And these days we have digital audio workstations and you even have advanced MIDI where I can draw in a pitch bend. Yeah. I don't know what it was like in 1990. What did you have to do to get a note to play? on screen uh, through a speaker well firstly you had to think in simplistic terms first you couldn't go the other way around um when you wrote a piece a melody for example you had to make sure that that would sound okay if that was the only note you could have because mm -hmm. in, in the case of the pc we would literally use the beep that a computer made when you first turn it on and it went beep we'd use the little system beep as a tool for making music for people who only had a default computer with no additional sound hardware. Um, so it had to be cool even on that. So I would fake a little bit of rhythm by using really teeny tiny short beeps as almost a drum sound with a little bit longer one for maybe the kick drum and a little shorter one for the snare intermixed between a melody. So if the melody went... Um, Something like da 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 da. I might have a rhythm that go da 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 and I just keep moving back and forth between melody and rhythm to give you a sense that hey, there's really a piece of music here, but you don't really have the good hardware to hear it. But it was still pretty cool, and it was still fun. And then for sound effects, we'd have to use shortened versions of things, like for a door opening, we'd have. And for door closing, we go, you know, so we had yeah, very, inverse. very just simple ways of doing things, but it's all we had. So you had to first think in terms of what's going to work for that and then start expanding that and, and extrapolating that to a bigger, more complex piece. How could that be cool? Even if it was a fully done piece. Um, and then you would write the simple piece, 
then a complex piece, and then you'd break down different versions for the six or seven or eight different sound cards and variations that were out there. Um, and so it was a lot of busy work because um, when I first started, one of the things I was doing was like King's Quest V's uh, alternate arrangements for all the different things. And it really made me dissect music in a very different way. I had to really think about how music is constructed um, to make sure it worked on really everything. All the little, the, the Tandy had a three voice one with three notes you could have. The Adlib and the Mac had a four note one that you, and then there was a sound blaster with nine notes, but they were FM notes. They weren't really a good sounding unit. So it was a, it was a lot of um, tedium in making it all sound good on everybody's little system. And you had to think in terms of the way that it was all constructed. So when I would start with that first melody, I would really work hard to try and make sure that it had enough of an emotional connection as much so as you could have with the kind of melody it was and the kind of intervals and notes and rhythm that it had. So that when I went to a bigger, uh, more capable sound card, I was able to really make that thing emotionally come alive for its day. I mean, this is not real instruments. This is really mm -hmm. cheesy sounding kind of computery sounding things, but it's what we had, you know, um, and trying to make that emotional connection with such a limited little arsenal of sonic tools uh, made me, I think, a, a much better composer in terms of how I understood the way that music could work together to, to give me the emotions I wanted. While we're on the old stuff. Uh, so some of my, my staff members uh, have noticed who's in the audio recording booth here <laughs> and they, they have, they have things they want to tell you. So I'm, I'm going to read this one off for a uh, donkey. Right. So he says, uh, please tell Aubrey Hodges that he was in the credits of the very first game I ever completed, uh, which was mixed up mother goose. Oh he yeah. Said that, he remembers your name in the credits, right? He said right after Ken Allen on that game. Yeah. <laughs> but with, uh, with all that you just said and, you know, coming from that background of like, you know, we work with the tools we have, what was it, you know, what, what was the point where you started to have like, okay, somebody presents you with a new tool that's going to change the game. And what's that moment like for you? Um, yeah, like the first time you could choose your own samples instead of using mm -hmm. what was on the sound card. Probably one of the first cool things was the the digital audio converter, the DAC. That was the ability for us to finally use speech files, real, not sound effects off the MIDI thing, but actual sound effects that we would record in a studio, as well as voiceover files and having the, uh, what do they call it, uh, MPC versions of the game, the I forget what that acronym was, but it was the versions that were multimedia capable and you could actually put real actors on your products. That was very cool. Um, and even on Quest for Glory, we were able to get some really big talent. And so that was a big game changer because now you could have talking and neat sound effects. And of course, we were still dealing with a lot of limitations because of how ginormous that, that type of data was in the, in those times that uh, speech files were huge. So that was the first big one. And the second big one probably came um, when you could load your own, like you mentioned, your own samples into the little MIDI devices that were out there. Um, there were um, 
that was a pretty big game changer because now you could make custom sounds and custom uh, instruments that you could then play back that were much higher quality than the, than the things that were, that were out there. And I think that that really started, the whole industry started having a far more custom feel then. And that was interestingly, one of the things that when I started doing the, the doom and the quake stuff and all of the dark ambient stuff, one of the things that enabled me to do that was the fact that I could load my own samples in and I could get samples from anywhere. And mm -hmm. I got, I got a lot of samples from some, some bizarre places um, and just hoped that they would be cool. And a lot of them didn't work. I mean, I, I, I probably for every one that worked 50 didn't work. Yeah. I started off my musical career making for MIDI for general MIDI. Oh yeah. And then once I've got a full digital audio workstation, I spent initially about 10 times the time just getting my instrument sounding right or my sound file sounding right, as opposed to actually composing the track and i can imagine for like the the uh the doom the playstation doom soundtracks or especially like the doom 64 because you had lim limited memory on the n64 you had to choose the right ones and they had to be right ones because you're not going to get any more than what you had yeah you aren't kidding uh the memory constraints were, were murderous but um you know you you kind of knew what your your limitations were going in so you went for less subtlety and more um you, you try to find things that were that were unique and striking in a way that were i don't know the right expression here that were so over the top i suppose that you could almost count on them being pretty cool when they got you know resampled down with horrible sample rates and they would start aliasing and chirping and doing all the artifacting and stuff that you get with crappy rates and so you just had to almost take their best guess that i think this is going to be cool this is going to work and uh and then you would get those ones where it really did and you it was a really fun feeling you just kind of i knew when i would find one like that yep that one's cool that's going in yeah, I th I know exactly what you're talking about. You like a lot of samples. If you just listen to them by themselves, they can't they can sound harsh because they have a high frequency range, kind of like noise. But then once you pitch them down, those high frequencies start getting lower, and they can hear the tones and interesting evolutions over yeah. long periods of time. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it's funny too. I, I I've told the story before about the little freaking bumblebee that got in my Mountain Dew can, and. Uh, I forgot to tell people that I'm I'm pretty afraid of bees. I'm not a, a fan of bees. Okay, that I I think I'm mildly allergic, and I've been stung before, and it's not a it's so bees and me are not buddies. Okay, no offense to people who like bees, they, they are cool. They just don't get along with me. So trapping that little guy in there was actually kind of scary, but man, the little weird sound he was making was worth it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was surprised to hear when they cracked the N64 ROM and ripped the sounds off that. Baby crying was uh, a squeaky toy at higher pitches, but then when you down pitched it, it sounded like a like a baby, a demonic baby, or it was just it blew my mind. Yeah, um, yeah. A lot of that was because I needed to find sounds that were short, very, very, very short. Mm -hmm. And the advantage of dropping the root key down is that when you drop them down in the pitch, that's the sound would what feels like lengthen. It's not mm. really lengthening. It's just lengthening in terms of how you're, it's playing back. But that's right. what's creating all of the weird digital glitches. Um, and so the shorter the sound, the better. 
So the idea of like using a bee, for example, was kind of cool because, you know, their wings are flapping like really fast. I don't know the speed. I'm sure that somebody could Google it. But yeah, any sound with a lot of complexity in a short space was what I was trying to find. And uh, yeah. And some of them were sounds I didn't like the fact that they were happening, like when my stupid laptop was going out. I'm like, oh, that's not good. Uh, but, hey, at least it, it died for a, a cause. And on its deathbed, it knew I sacrificed my digital essence for this cool video game, you know? Man, that's, it's just <laughs> amazing to hear that. Uh, the anxiety of a bee uh, being stung by a bee generated one of those sounds. A dying laptop generated oh. sounds. It seems to fit the theme of doom this dying tech being afraid of what's around the corner going into each sound yeah, it sounds oh. more like a system shot game actually yeah that, i wasn't a, I, I i got lucky that bee kept coming around me and i kept dodging him and then he landed on the stupid cannon and then he like went in the hole and i thought holy crap the little dude has just ruined my mountain dew and then i thought oh listen to that sound and thankfully midway had these like little key fob card things you know, mm -hmm. that I could put over the the lid and trap them in there. And I, hey, for those interested in animal rights, I did not kill the little bee. I let the little guy out when I was done. That bee is immortalized now as one of the sounds <laughs> for generation to generation. Damn, he was a big little bumblebee. Now, now when you were working on the soundtracks, like let's say like on uh, Doom 64, uh, Quake 64, the lot of the tools were experimental at that time because the system just came out. Uh, they like to keep things secret. They probably didn't tell the developers much, so they had to work with what they had. And we found, uh, like through Eric and Kaiser, who was breaking apart the ROM, that there's notes in the MIDI files that either end up going unplayed or they get played at a different pitch. Did you have to compensate for that? Or was it more of a case where you put it on the ROM and listen to it? It was like, hey, actually, that sounds kind of good. Yeah, that's Yes, it did sound a little different live. And then I, I caught some of that. But it, it was at the point where I wasn't sure that it was a bad result. It, it ended up being a little, a little more sparse than I had intended, just on occasion, not consistently. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't so bad. I, I, I kind of thought, well, okay, to redo that, and then I sort of ran through that scenario where you figure out a point of diminishing returns because of your time, and I was already they were already pushing me into another direction on other projects, and I just kind of went, you know, okay, we're going to have to just live with that. It's it's not exactly what I intended, but it's the spirit is still there, the energy is still there, it still creeps me out. So yeah, we're, we're okay. Um, well, one thing I felt with creating an ambient track of being not knowing what's around another corner is not having too much predictability. So I kind of wonder if those drop notes, because when you're, when you're human and you start composing a track, you get stuck in your natural human rhythms. Now mm -hmm. having a random one dropped here and there, that might've actually helped out in the end. Cause I well, yeah. I mean, people are still talking about that soundtrack 25 years later. And and you know what's interesting is when I did the re-release, um, I captured the the actual live playing N64 and the live playing PlayStation. I didn't go back to the original stuff and try and recreate what I intended. Because to me, the idea of a soundtrack is to get what happened 
not what you intended to happen, what happened mm -hmm. and what, what people actually heard and fell in love with. And so for me, it was more important to have the posterity of this is the truth of what you got to hear when you played the game. This is what you heard rather than making going and correcting that type of thing. And so that's kind of how I approached it. And then when I do the extended versions, the reasons I sell both, you know, people are like, well, why are you doing that? Is it just for profit or whatever? Yes and no. I mean, sure, I need to make a living. But it's also so that you can have the original. This is what shipped. This is the links. This is how it was. And you can have, okay, this is what I would have done if I had more time and I had more samples available. And this is probably what I was actually trying to make happen for you. So I like the fact that they're longer because then people can use them in mobs. They can use them in all sorts of ways. They can use them at Halloween parties or whatever they want to do, you know, uh, whatever makes them happy. And I try and include the things that I'm certain I would have done if I had that memory in that room. Uh, and that's the hard part is trying to let myself get back to that time where I was and, and thinking in those terms so that I could feel confident to say, yeah, this is how I would have done it. Uh, and then on the new stuff, <clears throat> like the bonus tracks, uh, for me, it's like saying, okay, if we're going to continue the story and there's more to the story and I'm envisioning all these other cool places and scenarios, here's some more things that I feel like felt like would probably fit into that collection of, of dark ambience that was there. Um, and then, you know, like I've told the modding community in the past, uh, grab those bonus tracks and use them, have fun with them, you know? Yeah, that's great. I mean, um, we're still modding doom 64 to this day and actually modding has kind of picked up on it in recent times because of the re-release. So in a whole new generation, the, of fans that had uh, doom eternal got it as mm. a pre-order bonus so oh, now man. there's probably more people playing doom 64 at this moment than when it was first released right and uh when i i i'm super obsessed everyone knows i'm obsessed i can't stop talking about it so they try to find outlets for me to talk about it and i watch streams of people watch playing the game for the first time and they listen to it, and they they you can immediately tell that they're getting into that emotional state of being hesitant, looking around the corner. But one thing I like that you've done as well is you follow the player through their emotional state, not just when they are in the level, but after you they beat the level, because then mm -hmm. you have the stat screen music, the uh, the finale music, which is now like a fanfare, right. and it really encourages the player after going through their deal to now have relief and excitement before yeah. they enter the next level. Yeah, Doom's a hard game. I mean, I I was never very great at it. I mean, I wasn't bad, like, like you know, like grandma trying to play it, but I'm, I wasn't like the testers and stuff. These some of these guys were amazing, man. Some of them are stunningly good. But for me, I um, I knew it was hard to get through these levels, especially if you played at the higher difficulty levels. Mm -hmm. And I felt like you should really be rewarded with the energy of that. And mm -hmm. likewise, I felt like that would match this sort of natural energy level of the actual Marine himself. If he went through and got to the end of that door and went to the next phase, he'd have that, okay, I got that part done. Now I'm up for the next challenge. And so I kind of wanted to give that reward at, at the end of the stat screens and stuff. And then of course, when you finally do win, 
um, man, what a, what an accomplishment that's you, you have gone through a lot to get to that stage. And I just wanted to make sure that it did have the, okay, you met that challenge and now the world is going to be a brighter place because of what you did. So that's kind of where I was coming from with that. And now that I got you talking a little bit about, uh, how your assets are used for mods and whatnot, um, since we recently have been trying to figure out the Wes MIDI format and the, as you mentioned, the N64 NES, so Wesley yeah. and Nessie formats. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a group of us, so uh, Impoy, uh, Anomalous Horse, Dexias, are using your samples and composing new tracks. And since they're such weird sounds, I was wondering if you have any tips for people working with that weird sound structure. Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, look. So the, the thing you have to do critically is let the sound work for you in long and and think in terms of uh, a roller coaster and how it moves. If you constantly just keep dropping people off the cliff, you're going to just you're going to thrill them to the point where they don't really know what thrill is anymore because the entire thing is a thrill. So you've got to make sure there are highs and lows, and you have to make sure that the the periods are long enough for people to mm. adjust their emotional state for a while, so that when another unexpected sound happens it actually does shock them like breathing room. And that, so when I hear people listening to the doom 64 soundtrack, when they're playing through it, the one track that really stands out is breakdown. And there you have these silences where you allow things to breathe. Then you hear a voice and it, and it really, it, it puts uh, people at unease, but it gets them curious. Like, where does that noise come from? Right. And so this roller coaster of ups and downs, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And you have to time it in such a way that you let people get lured into feeling that energy for a bit so that, so that they do feel some momentary relief from the stress. Because the goal isn't to just put people on alert the entire time because that sort of intensity isn't, it just isn't fun for mm-hmm. a long long period of gameplay. So you've got to let them breathe a little bit. You've got to let the samples breathe and let the samples do a lot of the work for you. Um, Don't get too thick because then the entire experience feels too low end heavy, too bass heavy um, and too crowded. Let it breathe. It doesn't need quite so much. There's a lot going on there. And um, so that's the key is to let the samples do the work for you. And there were some, re- and there were some technical reasons I did that too for the old stuff, and that's that the, the, the size of the MIDI file was also calculated into your memory. <laughs> oh, so yeah. So if you made a large memory, then yeah. you have to cut another enemy from Doom sixty four. It'd have to be shorter. The songs would be shorter. So I'm like, I got to space this out. So that's one of the reasons I tried to use such intricate samples so that the sample could do a lot mm-hmm. of the heavy lifting for you. Um, yeah, I was talking to. Uh, uh, Tao fan earlier today about one of your lesser celebrated tracks, and that's the Quake 64. Not a lot of people realize that's also you as well, or especially Quake 2, because you went under a pseudonym. Yeah, yeah. But uh, my favorite track on there is uh, House of Kithan. And a couple months ago, I looked at the MIDI of that, and it's just one sample used in there. This, yep. this one long evolving sample. But yet that track is so like melancholy 
but yet beautiful and just how it flows up and down just one sample i i couldn't believe it when i seen it, it was just one sample yeah and the way i would do so what you can do is you can use one sample but you can create multiple patches of the sample and so you can set different root keys and different ways that it would express to volume and then you can play it based on if you're playing it really hard with a heavy velocity or very soft it has a different character um and then the mixture of it being, you know, sort of expressed to you in different ways, it seemed to feel unique enough in each, each of sort of its different iterations that I didn't need more. So I thought, well, this is pretty cool. I was going to do all these other sounds, but Hey, sometimes less is more. Um, that's another thing that I think in, in general, in terms of dark ambience, that a lot of dark ambient uh, artists don't seem to quite grasp they're so hungry to keep introducing new sonic texture to you. Mm-hmm. They don't realize the power in the textures they are already been presenting to you. Yeah. I, I struggle with the same thing. Like when I make, when, cause I have my own synthesizer that I programmed and I make tracks on that. And often my first go is it's too layered. I have to start cutting things off. And I was working with your sound set this week and I was making a MIDI track and I, it was too fast. I had too many of my things too close to each other, and I started ha- dragging them out, dragging them away, because it would just be one after another after another. It's just crowded. And the the you want to have like that roller coaster. You want to let things breathe so people can actually hear and appreciate it. They have to have a break. So just everything you said, I was realizing I had to do, but I couldn't articulate it until you said it in that way. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I love hearing new artists do stuff and, and I want, um, it's, it's nice to be able to share, you know, how this was achieved and hear new stuff that comes out, you know, by people who are aspiring to do this style. Um, but the biggest, the biggest, uh, takeaway from this really is always lead with the emotional impact first. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the same thing we talked about earlier in more traditional, uh, forms of music, uh, start with the emotional intent and never lose that. If you've got that emotional intent, all the rest of it is just the details, right? Um, and even in this style, if you're if the goal is to feel a nervous twitchiness, like one of them's called static something. I forget. I had all these crazy things. Um, then you're gonna you're gonna want to make sure that that twitchiness is the big thing. That's the hook in that song. Mm-hmm. And that's going to give you that sense of nervous, the hair on the back of my neck standing up kind of uh, edge of my seat feeling. Um, and so then I would make sure that that was the thing I keep hearkening back to. And then I would have other moments where I would veered off that because you need sometimes light to see dark and you need quiet to know loud. And then I would come back to that because that was the that was the uh, emotional expression of that track. Another track, like I said, with the uh, baby crying one you know, lamentations that, that one is basically trying to make you feel that protective instinct in the track. Like I've got to reach that. I've got to get that. I've got to protect that weak, that vulnerable uh, entity Um, and trying to make you feel the need to achieve and have that emotional feeling of wanting to go protect the weak. Um, And so every track I try and come at it, like what is the little track story emotionally 
And then I come up with a neat textural soundscape that goes with that to try and enforce that story. Um, but yeah, the, the biggest mistake most people make in all forms of music is too much shit. It doesn't need so much. Some of the yeah. best composers in classical music don't constantly beat at you with the entire orchestra all at once. They, they spoon feed you moment. Mm -hmm. and they let them sing out in their own neat, unique voice. And some of the worst composing is the look at me. I'm a great composer. See how good I am. I've got 50,000 things smacking you in the face all at once. And people just can't really relate to that stuff. They mm -hmm. get impressed by it on the surface because, wow, listen, to all these neat intricacies. But all the intricacies actually hurt the main story they're trying to tell emotionally. So part of my job as the uh, the, the interviewer here is uh, we've got Jake here to get into the how, and I'm deeply interested in the how. But I, I personally am more interested in the why do we do things. So let's hop in my little – I have a time machine right here. <laughs> so I'll just get in it, and we're going to go to Norfolk, Virginia in 66. All right, so uh, Nixon is the president. Vietnam's kicking off. You're being born in – was it November? Is it November? Uh, that's right. Just make, making sure I got your uh, – my, my, no, my notes are correct, and by notes I mean Wikipedia. <laughs> but what – made you come online as a musician when did that occur uh okay so we grew up um um i don't know the right word for it uh poor um really and there wasn't a lot of distractions in my life we didn't have much we grew up in a very uh what's the politically correct word challenged neighborhood economically mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and a lot of the activities were just imagination, you know, you didn't have much. Um, but some in my family were doing a little bit better. And whenever we go over to their house, they had like musical instruments. And so it was such a novelty to hear music being played live. And whenever I could get my hands on it, I would touch the guitar and try and put my fingers on it and feel, you know, just, it was an interesting, cool thing. And the same with the piano and, there were really cool moments in our life where, you know, since there wasn't much else, we would just sing songs or uh, together as a sort of extended family with my cousins and, and all of that. Um, and the more my older cousins would let me play the guitar when I was eight or nine or whatever it was, or play the piano, the more, the more they sort of realized I had a natural inclination to it and was sort of figuring out, like triad chord voicings all by myself and how to do chords just all by myself. And so then they started showing me a little bit of how this stuff worked. Mm. Um, and with a little knowledge, soon I was playing, you know, old stew ball was a racehorse, you know, song that my cousin Mary taught me. And, and it was, it was, it was that moment where you you're making a little song and you're just like, Holy crap, this is the best thing I've ever done in my life. I don't ever want to stop doing this. And my aunt Elaine uh, eventually decided I should probably have my own guitar. And she bought me one. It wasn't some fancy thing. It was a small little classical guitar, but I lived and breathed on that thing. Um, and then later uh, our family went through some more hardship and my father uh, 
went through a, a, a massive stroke at the age of 38 and um, it paralyzed him. And he had hard times with balance and speaking and other things. And uh, unfortunately, he lost his balance one day and stepped on the guitar and killed it. Um, and it was hard because, you know, he, he cried like a baby. You know, he didn't have a lot of control over his emotions. And, and that really affected the family. But the family kind of pulled together. My grandmother and my aunt and my mom pulled together and bought me my first real instrument, uh, like professional quality one, which was a PVT-15 guitar with a uh, uh, amplifier built into the case. It was pretty freaking slick. It mm. was a really cool instrument by PV. They make great stuff. Um, and then when I had that real instrument with that was easier to play and just amazingly uh, good quality of sound, I couldn't believe how inspired I was to just play every day. So everybody was running around doing God knows what with all their cool stuff. I, I was home just playing my guitar all the time and living for it. And then later uh, we started doing a little bit better and we were able to get a little loan for my first synthesizer, which was a Yamaha DX21. And it had a little sequencer, uh, QX21 and a little drum machine. And I was able to start like thinking in terms of multiple instruments and, and my piano playing and all of that was, was getting a lot better. I was involved. I had become a Christian when I was 16. And so I was going to church and helping with their music and stuff. And that was giving me live play experience, you know, mm -hmm. um, which was kind of neat to get over a little bit of stage fright and always feeling a little inadequate because I'd kind of didn't have the formal training. Um, but I, I got so comfortable with playing and it's all I did that by the time I was, you know, getting ready to graduate, I was pretty proficient in uh, keyboard and guitar and bass and violin and trumpet and a few other things. It just, you know, music just sort of crept everywhere. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, I just kind of knew I wanted to do that. Um, and so after school, uh, I went on the road for a number of years uh, playing with uh, a group called Toymaker's Dream. It was like an off-Broadway production stage play thing of the gospel message and then i was doing a little show before the show started and stuff and playing for thousands and thousands of people which was a little nerve-wracking at first but eventually you kind of get used to it and i i loved music and i knew music was what i wanted to do but after for a few years of being on the road i i realized that i didn't want to live in a bus and i didn't want to live in hotel rooms and things um and so I got off the road. I wanted a normal life. I wanted a dog. You know, I wanted to meet a girl. You can't really do that stuff on the road. And when I say meet a girl, I don't mean for Netflix and chill or whatever the kids are calling. <laughs> I, I mean for meeting someone that is going to be your soulmate. You really can't do that when you're in a different city every night. So, yeah, I, uh, I ended up taking a job, um, you know, uh, that out in California that ultimately um, – connected me with video games industry. Um, and one of the things I was doing at the time was uh, sort of working in the pro studio gear section and helping figure mm -hmm. out, helping churches and studios figure out what they needed to accomplish certain tasks. Mm -hmm. And one of the clients was a, a, a really cool dude named Mark Siebert. 
um, who worked at Sierra Online. I didn't know that at the time, but he was always coming in and having me figure out weird challenges. Like, we need this and this and this. What do you think? And I'd be like, oh, God, uh, let me think about that for a few days. And then I'd come back with, all right, you need this connection. You need this MIDI 50-foot thing. You need all these different things, and, and we'll get it solved for you. And then one day, I think he, he just sort of said, hey, I want you to come up and visit us at the studio and you can install the stuff that you got and all that. And uh, when I came up there, there was the big Sierra online sign. I was like, oh, my God, video games. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. And um, he brought me in and we we did the little quick install and he showed me around and then he took me on a tour um, and afterwards said, hey, uh, I really think uh, we could use you here. And for me, you know, I was looking at all these computers and I didn't have those skills. Mm -hmm. I never had that kind of an education. So I said, I, I really don't know about all this computer stuff, dude. And he's like, well, yeah, but your music and what you can play and what you can do, we need that. We'll teach you the computer stuff. And boy, did they. Um, but it was hard. I knew it would be, and it was, but I learned. And, um, and hey, you mentioned Ken Allen earlier. Shout out to Ken, my friend. He's Still my friend after all these years, it's been 30 years and we're still buddies. Um, he helped me a lot in the beginning and I, I never thank him enough for that. Good man. But, uh, and it was interesting because when he left, it created a void because he was working on Conquest of the Longbow or hadn't mm -hmm. started on it, but he was planned to be the guy to do it. And then he left to uh, do his own thing and go to, with another firm. And I was the person they sort of came and said, hey, can you do, you know, a bunch of songs in a very short amount of time, like 130 songs in 45 days or something. Right. Oh. And I was just like, Oh, you've got to be kidding. You know? And I, I didn't know what to say. So I just said, Oh, oh, sure. Sure. Yeah. In my heart, I was thinking, Oh my God, is that even possible? Um, with enough Mountain Dew and a sleeping bag in your office, you can do it. Um, it was hard though, because I was married at newly married at the time. And so my wife was literally coming in there and spending hours just hanging out in the office while I was writing because we wanted to spend time together, but I had the work to do. And it's a, it's when you think about it now, those kind of work experiences are, are a little crazy, but um, Hey, the industry was young and, and I was hungry. I, I really, and I wanted to do a good job, you know, gives and, you character. Yeah, I guess, I guess so in some ways. And it certainly makes you, um, it, it, it makes you appreciate, you know, um, being ready for an opportunity and, and any new composers, any new musicians, sound designers, whatever voiceover actors, any, any artisan of any kind, look, just be ready. You've got to be ready for the opportunities when they come. I was literally spending 16 hours a day there. I was soaking up every knowledge I could get from everybody. I was talking to programmers and learning how to write better batch files. I was learning how to do Unix, you know, <laughs> command line stuff and everything I could learn. I was hanging out with the other musicians that were better at other instruments than me, the bass players and my buddy Rob and all these people. Hey, let me sh show me that. Show me that. How'd you do that? How'd you do this? What, what did you do there? What shortcut is that? And if you're ready when the time comes, then you can meet the challenge. But some people only go halfway, and then when the and when the opportunity arises, they're really not ready for it, and then they and then they blame everybody except their own inability to sort of do what it takes to be ready when the opportunity will knock, and uh, and then you just try and make those opportunities happen because you're ready and you're confident. Mm -hmm. uh, 
even if you don't feel confident, just get ready. And when the time comes, say yes. Yeah. Well, it, it, it seems to be true because then uh, Williams and Midway noticed you and electronics arts. Then it was like, yeah, let's have Aubrey Hodges over here. So you've been through uh, big companies. You've seen them rise and you've seen them fall, which brings me a question that I really want to ask. So, because people are staying home more these days, uh, there's been a boom in a lot of these indie uh, d- studios. Yeah. So, like in the keep is about uh, we we are very familiar with the retro f- FPS studios. So there's New Blood, there's uh, the new 3D realms, even though they're 3D realms old, but now they're having like a second renaissance. And then you also have Night Dive Studios, these studios that in a few years, they might start becoming the size of like a Midway. But uh, so you end up leaving Midway. And uh, I was wondering if you could tell any lessons you learned from Midway and why you left and how these other studios could uh, avoid having the same fate. Hmm. Well, I mean part of what happened at Midway had to do with the business being almost a little outdated and not responding quickly. For example, the pinball business, the arcade business, um, the failure to understand that that stuff was aging out and they needed to switch more aggressively to the console and home-based business. Um, That in conjunction with the hubris involved uh, with their own corporate arrogance, believing Mm -hmm. they could do no wrong, um, was not a good thing. They were a little overconfident in their, in their brand recognition and in their brand loyalty. Um, and so they were willing to put out games that weren't the greatest. And we would tell them, this is not ready. This needs six more months. This needs a year. It isn't good enough. And they would make us ship it anyway. Gravity games, bike, uh, you know, was a good example of that. That game was just not ready. Could have been so cool. Wasn't ready. Not even close. It was buggy and unfinished and had very little to offer in the long-term gameplay. And it was still 50 bucks or whatever it was. Same thing was true with some of the versions of Blitz that came out that I worked on mm-hmm. where the game wasn't different enough. It wasn't really, it didn't look very good. Um, it could have been really cool. There was some neat gameplay stuff they were going to want to add. And they said, no, get it out. We've got to, you know, we've got to meet these financial goals of this quarter. And when you start letting the stock market and all that kind of dumb shit control the artistic merit of your product, you're doomed. You're going to go down because it all revolves around the customer. The customer is the person that keeps your ass in business. And if you're not going to make that customer happy, just hang up your fucking sign and leave because the customer is the person who keeps you alive as a business. And if you, I mean, kind of extort them by making them pay 50 bucks on something, you know, is really worth 10 bucks or maybe not worth a dime, then you're really kind of taking advantage of the people that keep you afloat. Mm-hmm. And they just wouldn't listen. And it got very frustrating for me to say, come on, we've got to do quality stuff. We can't just do a lot of stuff. And that kind of, they had the same problem with a couple of the Mortal Kombat titles that were just rush jobs. And it just all started becoming a real bad uh, trust issue between the fans and the brand. And mm-hmm. uh, 
And so they were losing sales at an amazingly alarming rate uh, year over year because of that. And they were also trying to sort of drive products like Mortal Kombat and Blitz the same way that, say, Madden does it every year, where they're more of a sim title in each year. They're trying to represent the actual league. But with Blitz, it wasn't really like that. And you couldn't just swap jerseys and add a few new mm -hmm. player names and call it a day. You needed new gameplay options because it really wasn't a sim. And those types of things, gameplay takes time to develop. People, Some people don't understand that. They think video game development is all about the media part, the art, the, the sounds, and that sort of thing, the voiceovers, the cool story. It's also about gameplay. This is called video games. And if there's no hook in the gameplay, it doesn't matter about the other stuff. Go watch a movie if you want all that. you know. But if you're going to play a game, the game needs to be the central part of why you're doing it. And that's why some of these modern titles don't stand the test of time. Yeah, they look great. So it's it's a game. It's supposed to play great. Mm -hmm. And that's why something like Minecraft, who has no production value whatsoever, is amazingly fun to play because it's all about game play. And it's got its own cute style. But nobody's going to argue that that's going to rival Halo or something <laughs> visually mm -hmm. <laughs> or Last of Us or any of those are wickedly cool looking games, right? But they understood gameplay. And so I think um, that was the thing that Midway veered from, which ironically is the thing that a lot of people loved about Midway was some of the wickedly cool gameplay, the way that Blitz played, the way that um, Mortal Kombat played. And there's an art to that. And the more they veered from that and started de delivering sort of subpar experiences, the fans just walked away. I saw that writing on the wall after 10 years and it just, it broke my heart. I was there a decade. Um, and I knew I was going to have to do something because I just didn't think they were going to be able to change quick enough. And I had a family and everything. And at that time, EA was calling me every few months. Hey, you know, come on over. We've got a place up here in LA. We've got a place up here, you know, in Seattle, whatever. And eventually when they called me and said there was a place down in Florida, because I like warmer weather, typically I'm like, okay, that sounds fun. Let's talk. And that's how that sort of worked. <laughs> and, yeah. it was, and it was football. So I was going to like from Blitz and, and Kurt Warner's arena unleashed and all that football stuff to more football stuff, which felt mm -hmm. fun and comfortable. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, um, I would say there's a similar analogy because like NFL Blitz was not just football. So for people who weren't aware of the series, it had like you can drop an elbow on somebody or doing this, this cra crazy stuff, which was new and refreshing at the time. And uh, similar thing like wrestling games. Uh, is it a sports game or is it a gameplay game? And they, they try each year to release a new game doing like a roster change. But what fans really want to see is more gameplay. We want to see like a new cage match or we want to go backstage. And when they forget about that, that's when the game stops selling and it's trouble. That's because wrestling is not about, it's not about the mechanic of wrestling so much to most people like it. If you are a wrestler, then obviously you enjoy that stuff, but it's the pageantry and the storytelling and football is in many ways the same. 
you know, you could be the greatest football player ever, but if you don't, you know, win a Super Bowl or, you know, do an amazing play that people can like celebrate around, then it doesn't really mean anything. Uh, so with wrestling games, like the best ones are like, uh, remember SmackDown Shut Your Mouth? You, you get to play, like, you, you play through the, the process of like negotiating your career with Vince McMahon in that game, as opposed to the more recent titles, which are like, you know, very much just in the ring and mm-hmm. trying to get really into the, you know, oh, okay, like this is tap the button and do an arm bar kind of shit. Like, I mean, that's cool. And that's a good mechanic to have, but there's a reason why like fire pro wrestling is way better than uh 2k 2020 or whatever the fuck WWE is putting out right now. Right. But Aubrey, we're uh, we're about an hour and a half into this thing. I don't want to keep you up all night. <laughs> I'm a musician. I'm a night owl by trade, but that's all right. <laughs> Literally burning the midnight fuel. <laughs> you you mentioned before um, that you had some other interesting titles that you were currently uh, working on. What can you tell us? Um, one of them is a continuation of the Journey series. Um, Journey into the Dark Places and Journey into the Sacred Places, and then, of course, the Dark Places Volume 2. And this is Journey into the Cosmos. So it's going to be interesting because I'm exploring the ambient style, but also allowing a little more musicality at times. And the idea is sort of looking at the creation of the universe, um, quasars, black holes, uh, planets, constellations, um, all of these things. through as if you were able to sort of fly around and hear diegetically what that might be like, you know, if you could, if you could sort of be there when these things were conceived and conceptualized and put into place, what might it be like for you to experience if you could tell that story with sound? Um, So it's, it's, it's that. um, And it's a little more, of an emotional roller coaster in terms of the kinds of emotions you'll feel going, say, journey to sacred places you knew would be calming, journey into dark places, of course, you know, is going to take you into the dark, un, you know, unnerving feelings. This is this one's a little bit of the power and majesty of the creation of the universe and all of these neat things. But in some cases, it's also just about the sheer beauty and 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 large grandeur of it, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think sometimes the scale of our universe is is so big and so breathtaking that as a human being, we just can't fathom mm-hmm. the kind of size of, of all of this and the majesty and the and intricacy of it all. So that's an, a fun project that I'm working on. Um, and as I mentioned before, I'm, I'm trying to finish the Final Doom 20th Anniversary Edition um, and get that out. I, I know people have asked for it for a long time. Um, and then there'll probably be, um, I'm probably going to be releasing the soundtracks for Dragon Veil um, as well. Uh, so uh, the original stuff, the stuff over the years, the stuff for the events and all of that um, in longer, extended, more listenable versions. I had to keep it short during the mobile title because I didn't want to eat up everybody's phone, you know, with mm-hmm. longer tracks. But I do have the long versions. Almost all of that material was cut way down from four minute versions and five minute versions down to a minute or a minute and a half. So I'm going to be releasing that hopefully uh, within say the next six months. So what, one thing I want to kind of touch on that kind of stuff is the, because you're talking, you know, I'm going to re-release, you know, final doom and, and 
you've already re-released in Doom 64 and stuff like that. But in, in terms of intellectual property, have you always made a point to keep hold of like your own release rights for your music? Yeah, I do. Okay. Um, I either negotiate to keep the rights to put out soundtracks and not sync rights where you can use it for other games or TV or anything, any other intellectual property. I've got that on quite a few of my titles. And then uh, in this case, Dragonville, I've got that. I don't have the IP right to like use the Dragonville logo and stuff. And I could negotiate with whoever the heck has it now. I think Hasbro let it go um, and give them a cut too. So if I felt like that was really important. Um, And then uh, on Doom and other titles, I did as a license to Midway. So I maintained all my full rights for that stuff. It's the same with uh, Sierra. And so for me, it's, it's very critical that the material is at the very least something I can release for people who like the music for the music's sake. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and cause in some cases they just wouldn't let me have the rights, but they would give me the right to release my material as a, as its own work, um, yeah. which I appreciate. And then, in other cases, they were like, okay, well, we don't really have any plans for it. And so, you know, we'd rather just license it for this product. And, uh, yeah. How common is that? Because I don't hear many other music- game musicians releasing their albums in the same way you do. And it's like a real treasure trove, but it's always made me wonder, maybe they didn't negotiate the way that you do. Maybe you had some sort of foresight Yes, I've I've always felt that it was important to me to 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 be able to walk away from a project and say, no, I'm not doing that. If I can't have the ability to at least sell my own work, I'm not doing the project. Get someone else. You have to be at that stage, or you won't probably be able to get the right. Um, and in some cases, it wasn't hard. Like with Dragonvale and all my stuff for uh, for Backflip, I had such a wonderful relationship with. The, the studio founders with, with Tom Blind, with Julian Farrier and those guys, they were they became close friends. So it was easy in that case because I said, obviously, guys, I'm going to want to do soundtracks. I'm like, no, no fucking problem. Sure. Um, with bigger companies, it gets a little weirder, of course. But sometimes I just I learned early on, you just have to put your foot down and say, no, I will license this to you. You can use it in any damn way you want. I'll even help you if you want to do your own version of the soundtrack and put it out. You can do that too. But I want to do my thing and release it as a work of art. And I want to be able to, and I think as the writer of it, I should be able to do that. Yeah, some guys don't do that. And they do this, what's it called? A work for hire agreement instead. Mm -hmm. And that you're just completely screwed if that's what you're doing is work for hire. You need not to be doing that, composers, for fuck's sake. Stand up for yourself and say no. Um, at least get the right to release your own soundtrack for your own posterity. Cause one day you're going to be gone and you want your stuff to keep living on. Um, and they're not going to do it for you. Most of the time, these companies are just unwilling to put the energy and effort into making a soundtrack. It's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Even when you think you've got the stuff, you still have to go back and re-slice it and dice it and cut it. So it's a listenable thing as a musical, uh, as just a musical soundtrack rather than it's accompanying a game and it works in the context of that because you don't have loop points and all this other neat stuff you've got in the live game. So you've got to make sure that what you're putting out is something worth the money. God forbid, you know, I I don't want to put things out that aren't worth people's 
you know, hard-earned money. Um, so yeah, for me, it was important. And I wish more composers would maintain their rights if they can. Um, and I would understand it more if I saw more companies pay more attention to soundtracks and that sort of thing. And they were trying to put it out and market it and all that, but they don't. So it's a really, it's, it's really a disservice to their fans not to put the soundtracks out. And I love it when I see a company do it. I like Gareth Coker did the Ori uh, and the blind four soundtrack. Mm -hmm. Beautiful work. Holy shit. That guy's a badass. But I was so thrilled to see that they did a fully done silkscreen, beautiful version of the soundtrack that came when you bought the uh, uh, definitive edition or something. You got the soundtrack. I love that kind of thing. I would love to see some of this stuff get treated like that by the companies that, that I've worked for. But most of the time they don't. So it's left to me to keep the legacy alive and keep it going. Well, on behalf of people who grew up with these games and cherish them, I have to say thank you because just looking at your Bandcamp page, it's a treasure trove of soundtracks that personally have inspired me in my musical career, and I know they have inspired others as well. Oh, well, thank you. That's thank you for those kind words, and and I'm I'm just glad that you know it it definitely seems to touch people and bring that nostalgia you know, uh, from their childhood. And I, I'm sorry for all the people I've scared. A lot of, a lot of people are like, Hey, you gave me nightmares. Sorry about that. Um, but Hey, you shouldn't have been playing it when you were nine. Come on. <laughs> <sighs> I think we're at a good place to wrap it up. I, I do want to say on behalf of the, the doom rave community, thank you for doing this. This is a huge deal to them. Uh, I assume it's going to air, you know, as part of their event. I think they have like a four hour block just dedicated to different interviews and things like that. So that's going to be really dope. But personally, like my, my journey here uh, on this podcast has been to tell the story, not just, you know, I don't want to get shoehorned into this thing where it's like game designer, game designer, game designer. We have a lot of that, but I love telling the story of, you know, everyone involved in the process and that be musicians. I've had, you know, like Andrew Holschel was a huge, huge uh, player in getting this show off the ground. Uh, Michael Markey will probably be on at some point in the soon. Uh, I think Alexander Brandon's talked about it, but like to have your name on that Mount Rushmore of amazing uh, game composers is such an honor and I really do thank you very much for uh, tolerating me waking up late and for uh, spending more time than you agreed to. Hey, thank, thank you guys for having me. It's, it's been my pleasure. It really has. It's been wonderful to, to talk about all this stuff with you guys. Yeah, it's been, it's been amazing. You can come back anytime you like. We will be, uh, we'll, we'll keep the coffee warmer on. And <laughs> chat all you want. This has been awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I can talk endlessly. <laughs> Well, you guys have my contact information, so reach out whenever you like. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. All right. First of all, thank you to the fine folks here at the Doom Rave, all of you for listening. If you're listening afterwards, sorry you missed it, but thank you as well for listening. Thank you to king dime for actually making the connection and thinking of me uh to do this interview that was really fucking cool of you man thank you definitely to a without whom this interview would not have been nearly as cool 
Also, I deeply want to say thank you to all of our supporters, so you know who you are, but Paul, Moose, Dots, Zach, Alexander, Brad, Red Eyes, Anthony, Robert, Jack, Brandy, Fred, everybody on Patreon, uh, everybody who's buying merchandise and all that shit right now, you're incredible. Thank you guys for supporting the Pigeon Classic 3rd Annual FPS Charity Event all weekend long, if you're tuning in live, if not, you know, whatever. But hey, you're all awesome. Thank you very, very much for tuning in. If you like the show, I recommend you head over to inthekeep.com to hear more like it. We also have a support tab there, so you can uh, support if you'd like to, many different ways, grab some merchandise, do whatever you want. And if you enjoy the show, I, I recommend you go to quakecast.podbean.com and check out The Quakecast. It's an amazing podcast with our good friend Dump Truck DS. Quake mapping community, talking all things Quake. You'll hear lots of music like this. Actually, their theme song is done by Michael Markey, as a matter of fact. And uh, yeah, just hang in there, guys. I know it's been tough, but you got amazing events like this one going on with the Doom Rave and the Pigeon Classic and all that. And it can't be all that bad, right? Keep your head up. I love you. The Drowned God Cathala loves you. Be good to thy neighbor and stay in the keep.